Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. At the recent Rekindle the Fire men's conference, Bishop sat down with Kyle for a question and answer session. Men attending the conference submitted their questions that day. Kyle asked them and Bishop answered. That's what we're bringing you this week. Thank you, brothers in Christ. Great to be with you this afternoon. I hope you've had a great day thus far. Oh, that's right. I'm Bishop Rhodes. I forgot about that. That's good. Okay. And I'm so glad Kyle's up here because if there's any particularly tough question, I'll defer to him because he is very theologically informed. Uh, because you just want me to look stupid is what it, like. <laughs> No, that's what happens on my radio show. If it's a tough question, I just refer it to Kyle. Yeah. Bishop, <laughs> we have more questions than we could possibly have time to answer. So just be assured that if you have a question that wasn't answered, maybe we've already answered it on an episode of Truth and Charity in the past. Uh, maybe we'll answer it on a future episode because we always provide the opportunity that if people have questions, we can submit those. You can do that on the website as well. If you go to spokestree.com slash askbishop, you can submit questions there as well if, if there's something you think of later. So we'll get through as many as we can, but our first one is something that I think is very important, especially for us as men. This is happening on Father's Day. The question is, what should I know about the Eucharistic procession on June 19th, and why is there a revival? Ah, wow. Great first question, because I wanted to talk about this. First of all, as you may or may not know, the U.S. bishops have called for a three-year Eucharistic revival. I am really excited about this. This will be my number one priority as bishop for the next three years. I've already been working on it. And as I was discerning how to begin, it will begin nationwide on Father's Day, June 19th, this year, 2022. And I thought, I would like to have a big diocesan gathering to begin the revival. And I thought, well, it is the solemnity of the body and blood of Christ. June 19th is the Feast of Corpus Christi. So that's a day where we traditionally have processions of the Most Holy Eucharist. So I thought, let's have a diocesan Corpus Christi procession. And then I thought, okay, where? I had a big Eucharistic procession some years ago. I've had them in both Fort Wayne and South Bend, but they were wonderful. But I'm talking about something much bigger where we're really going to promote it. And I hope all of you will come. So I had to think, okay, this is always the dilemma, Fort Wayne or South Bend. And I thought, well, maybe. <laughs> but you go back and forth with Rekindle the Fire. And you know, then I thought, why don't we just go to the center of the diocese. Let's go to Warsaw and have the Eucharistic procession there. So the city of Warsaw is very excited. They've already gotten permission from the state to close down Route 15, which I, didn't, I was kind of worried that we wouldn't get permission. But I would like to see thousands. I invite all of you personally to spread the word, to come, to bring your families, to tell others in your parishes and communities to attend. It will be 3 o'clock p.m. Father's Day. What a great, 
greater way to celebrate Father's Day than to, uh, to adore the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, to bear witness to your faith in the Holy Eucharist as Catholic men. So I hope you will mark your calendars and really spread the word. It's going to be a little difficult with parking, so a lot will be coming by buses. It's all being very well organized. We have a diocesan point person who has been doing a fantastic job. I don't know if, if Chris Langford is here today or not. Chris is working so hard, publicizing already with parishes and apostolates throughout the diocese, the Catholic colleges and universities. We're trying to get everyone involved as a great public display of our faith in the Holy Eucharist, our love for Christ present in the Blessed Sacrament. So you are all invited. In the first year of the revival, it will definitely, it's, it's a diocesan phase. So this is a diocesan event. We will also be doing a lot of other things that will be resources that we'll be providing to parishes for study groups and Bible studies on the Eucharist, all kinds of things in our schools. The second year will be very much focused in parishes one thing I will be talking soon to the priests about, which I'll give you a little preview, is I will ask that in that second year of the revival that every parish of the diocese celebrate 40 hours devotion, and I'll try to get around to a lot of them. And um, that's a beautiful tradition. Uh, St. John Neumann, Bishop of Philadelphia, brought it to the United States. Actually, in my former diocese, it's still required that every parish have 40 hours devotions. So I've always wanted to have it here in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, and now is like a perfect opportunity because it's with this Eucharistic revival, which means basically on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, the Blessed Sacrament is exposed in the parish. There's Eucharistic preaching every evening and devotions, and it closes with a solemn closing on Tuesday evening, where the priests of the area would all gather at a particular parish where they're having it. I'm on the national committee or whatever, working on this. There are just a lot of ideas that we have. Of course, the Eucharist is the source and center of our Christian life. That's why we're giving so much emphasis, as well as the struggles many people have with believing in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So there's a catechetical dimension as well, a theological dimension, to help people understand why we believe and the reasons for our faith, not only in Christ's presence, but also what happens at Mass is the sacrifice of Christ becomes present for us. His body broken for us, his blood poured out for us, so it's not only the, a sta it's not a static presence. This is the presence of an active presence of Christ's sacrifice of love for our salvation, the greatest event of love in the history of the human race, the death of the Son of God who became man for us on the cross. And besides our belief in the Eucharistic presence and Eucharist as sacrifice, we're to unite our lives, our whole lives, should have this sacrificial dimension as men. That's what this is all about. You're living the sacrificial love of Jesus 
as husbands, as fathers, as single men, as priests. So it's connected to our life. And then holy communion. Because we not only believe in the real presence of Jesus and the presence of his sacrifice on the altar, but that we are united with him when we receive Holy Communion. And that means we should be properly disposed to receive the Blessed Sacrament, which means that we're in the state of grace, and we're to live the Eucharist that we receive by living those lives of sacrificial love. The Eucharist commits us to the poor. The Eucharist commits us to service. The Eucharist commits us to living the gospel of Jesus, to imitating Jesus, to following his teachings. And we're nourished by him with the grace that we receive when we receive Holy Communion. I'm sorry, I'm giving a, a homily, and we've, this is just the first question. Um, but, but the third part, I have to mention this, the third year will be the national focus. So the whole three years will end with a National Eucharistic Congress. And I'm on also that group, the board. We just set up a corporation just last week, National Eucharistic Congress. And as the bishops were considering where it should take place, I was really happy that the result was the finalists were like Denver, Atlanta, and Indianapolis, and Indianapolis won. So it'll be close. So, so I'm hoping for great participation from our diocese at the National Eucharistic Congress. I remember when I was a freshman in college, I attended the International Eucharistic Congress in Philadelphia, and that impacted me a lot. As a matter of fact, the year after I attended that, I entered the seminary. So it was a beautiful experience. That was international. But um, this National Eucharistic Congress, I forgot, it'll be over a few days. That won't be until summer of 2024. So I, I understand, Bishop, you're going to be leading a pilgrimage walking all the way down to Indianapolis. Is that right? I didn't think about that, but I'm, yeah, our procession in Warsaw is going to be quite a, I didn't even tell you. It's from Sacred Heart to Our Lady of Guadalupe, so we're talking two and a half miles. I'm determined to carry the monstrance the whole way, and next week I'm going to start lifting weights so that my arms will be able to do it. Good deal. Bishop, if you were not in religious life, what would your career look like? Professional golfer was what the question is. <laughs> Profe That'd be the last thing. <laughs> I'm a terrible golfer. I'd probably be a teacher. I love teaching. So, and the things that I enjoy most would be theology and history. So my ideal other profession would be maybe teaching on a, probably on a college level, both. Or painting houses. Painting houses is like fun painting. too. I like yeah. manual labor. <laughs> Your favorite non-sacramental part of being a priest? Preaching. And I'd say connected to that is being out in the parishes and schools and other, you know, my least part is the administrative part, which is, of course, part of the job. You know, being in the office, I get a ton of mail. I can never keep up. I mean, hundreds. So if you ever write to me and you don't hear back, I, I'm sorry, I'm trying. It's just impossible. But we're talking about 82 parishes and all of our 43 schools. And 
it, and it just happens that whenever there is a crisis somewhere, it ends up on my desk. So that's part of the job, but I have a great staff, and I'm very blessed. We're very blessed by those who work with me at the Archbishop Knowles Center and the St. John Paul II Center, our two diocesan offices. I really wouldn't be able to do that administrative side of the job without their assistance. We have a very good diocesan finance council. We have uh, very good consultative groups that are uh, part of the decision-making that takes place besides the diocesan curia, besides the diocesan office staff, a lot of lay participation. I couldn't do it without a great group of priests, but also really competent laity in areas that I wouldn't have much expertise in, whether it's buildings and properties or finances or all those things. So I just have to listen. I receive a lot of advice. I like that collaboration so that I can make prudent decisions. Just to remind you, I did, I did not write these questions. I'm just reading them. Please describe the changes or differences between young men when you were a young bishop versus now, and how are seminarians different, and what changes in their education? So I'm not a young bishop I, anymore. I did not write the question. <laughs> 64, okay. I would say the challenges for young men are greater, even in the course of the 17 years that I've been a bishop. And I think part of that is the culture. We find more men who come to us from kind of difficult backgrounds as far as experiences maybe of, of coming from broken families or have other wounds of different sorts that need to be attended to. And I think that's a cultural phenomenon. One of the things being here at a men's group, those who who've, have had absent fathers in their lives, or not just necessarily physically absent, but emotionally or spiritually absent, that leaves wounds in young men. And of course, the other things, the various things that go on in the culture. I think the increased use of technology, as much as it's convenient and helps us in many ways, I see young men today who are, their lives have been also adversely affected by being so much on their smartphones. And that kind of hurts sometimes the social maturity that's needed because of interpersonal relationships. You'll probably see that in your own kids. I mean, so we have to kind of, I say, take a fast from some of that so that they are really entering into good friendships and interpersonal relationships that are important for one's affective maturity. I became a bishop in 2004, but if I compare it to when I became a priest in 1983, I mean the changes are pretty dramatic. So priestly formation, seminary formation, has to take account of this. We have to, do, we have to attend to these things in the formation of men for the priesthood. But I even go beyond that. I would say even formation of men, laymen, in, in our colleges and universities, etc., to help them to grow, to have healthy and holy lives. Will we ever get the blood of Christ at communion? I understand the question, but I just want to say a little preview of that. Every time you receive the sacred host, you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. But as far as I know the question is, we'll be able to receive holy communion from the chalice again. I don't know. I really don't. 
I think the fact of infectious diseases, even beyond COVID, I think medical people will be advising the church. I don't know of any places where they have, have resumed the distribution of the precious blood from the chalice. The sign value of it is why we have it. It's never been required. It's always been an option because it brings out more the, the sign value of the Eucharist. But you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity when you receive just the host. We are going to take a short break, but if you have a question for Bishop to answer on a future episode, send it to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Here's part two of Bishop's Q&A session at the recent Rekindle the Fire Men's Conference. What do you think about the Pope's restrictions on the Latin Mass? That's a good question. Um, one of the, I, I have to answer this in two ways. I do understand the reasons why the Holy Father has restricted the use of Latin Mass because the ordinary form of the Mass is the Mass that was promulgated, the revised liturgy promulgated by St. Pope Paul VI. And that's, that's our way of worshiping as Latin Rite Catholics throughout the world. Pope John Paul, and then more so Pope Benedict XVI, extended the permission for the use of the traditional Latin Mass. And that continued under Pope Francis. But there were areas in the world where some of those who were promoting the traditional Latin Mass were criticizing or even attacking the Novus Ordo, the revised liturgy. And that is wrong. That's clearly wrong. The other part of that is some were also criticizing the authoritative teachings of the church issued by the Second Vatican Council. So unfortunately, what was happening that the traditional Latin Mass was getting, in a sense, co-opted by an ideology that was anti-Vatican II. And I think that's why the Pope put the restrictions on it. I would say from my own experience in our diocese, we had two communities of Catholics who had permission from Bishop Darcy to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, both in Fort Wayne and South Bend. And then when I became bishop, because those communities had a significant number, over 100 people in each, they asked for to have what's called a personal parish. So it's not doesn't have a territory, it's not a territorial parish, but a church that they can call their own. So I, you know, we had two churches, one in Fort Wayne, Sacred Heart, and one in South Bend, St. Stanislaus, which really had 
diminished in numbers quite a bit, and they were probably parishes that just couldn't sustain themselves anymore. And I thought, well, we have two churches, a church in Fort Wayne and a church in South Bend. I can make those traditional Latin mass parishes, which I did. And they were very happy and grateful for that. My own experience is that I have not seen much of that descent from Vatican II in either of those communities. They've been basically faithful. There have been individuals who have had that problem, though. So I've seen a little of that, but not to the extent I think that the Pope has seen in maybe other places. Um, so those two traditional Latin Mass communities continue in our diocese at Sacred Heart Fort Wayne and at St. Stanislaus in South Bend, basically because I don't see the problems there that the Pope is addressing. Aside from the obvious ways, praying, attending Mass, and giving financial support, how can we best support you as our bishop and our priests? It may seem like this is indirect, but to me it's most important after prayer, and that is your witness as faithful Catholic men. You don't realize, perhaps, how much that helps me or helps our priests. When you are strong in your faith and you're living it, when you're defending us, or defending the church when it's attacked in the media or whatever, when you stand up for our Catholic faith. You know, we need that. I need that. And it not only boosts my morale, it also, it's really beautiful when I see that. When you're active in your parishes, when you're doing good works, when you're witnessing to your faith at home and in the workplace, that's so edifying to me and I'm sure to our parish priests as well. So even though that might be seen as something indirect as far as helping me or helping our priests, it is, I think, one of the most important things that you can do to support us. And when you're faithful, it also means you're, you're formed more by your faith than you are by the media or social media or the divisive ideologies that are creating such polarization in our country. So I say to you, be Catholic first. Be disciples of Christ first. You know, follow the gospel and the teachings of the church and be in union with the Pope and your bishops and priests and, and not be swayed by political figures or others. Just make your Christianity, your, your Catholicism, number one in your life with your fan. Is there ever a time when and where the church would say it is morally correct or right to get involved in a war? War should only be a last resort. The church is very clear on that. We have a tradition that's called the just war theory, just war tradition. Actually, it has roots in ancient Greek and Roman thought, but it's been developed in the church, especially by great theologians like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas, the just war theory. This is a very timely topic because of Ukraine, isn't it? I'm a little rusty on the criteria. I, I didn't prepare for this, but there's two kinds of just war. One in Latin is called jus ad bellum, 
and the other is jus in bello. Jus ad bellum means the right to go to war, and jus in bello is the rights in war, okay, and the duties. So, for example, to be just in war, you know, use of chemical weapons or biological weapons, that's unjust. It, that indiscriminate killing that takes place through certain means, obviously, or nuclear. But I think as far as the right to go to war, first of all, every diplomatic means to avoid war must be exhausted, number one. Number two, there has to be a very, very serious reason, grave reason, and that has to do with protecting innocent human life kind of in like in our own personal lives, self-defense. So obviously, our assistance to Ukraine right now with providing arms, etc., I think is just. I mean, they're being attacked by an aggressor, and it's terrible. It's, it's, it's a crime what President Putin is doing, violating the sovereignty of another nation. Innocent people are being killed today in Ukraine. That's an unjust aggressor. Ukraine does have a right to defend itself, to take up arms against this Russian invasion. So I would say that's just on the part of the Ukrainians. And it is just for us to assist them. All the diplomatic means were attempted and Putin still attacked. That was unjust. The injustice is on the part of Russia. There's another aspect is if one goes to war, there needs to be some chance of success. In other words, there would, if it's something that would be futile, then it's not worth doing because there's no likelihood or no possibility of, of success that they're going to be destroyed anyway. But like I said, I didn't really prepare. It's been many years since I studied just war theory, but, but those are the basic components of it. There are some who choose, some Christians and some Catholics who choose more of a pacifist approach, and that's allowed, that's legitimate. There are Catholic pacifists who, who really perhaps would disagree with the just war theory. That's allowed, but that's not what the, the church doesn't require us to be absolute pacifists. What are keys to growing in holiness? Holiness is the perfection of charity. The greatest virtue, as you know, is charity, love. In order to grow in virtues, especially the greatest virtue of love, we need to open our hearts to God's grace, receive the sacraments, you know, by our own powers, we can't become holy. We depend on God's grace, and prayer is so essential. I don't see how one can really grow in holiness unless we're open to the God's grace because of our sinful natures. And one way we open ourselves to God's grace is when we pray and when we receive the sacraments. And I would say there also... Keep this in mind. I've been saying this in some recent homilies. There's no holiness without humility. What's the, uh, I think I'm going to say that in my homily at Mass this afternoon. What's the root of all sins? It's the sin, the capital sin of pride. What does Jesus teach us? What does God teach us? Well, first of all, 
God humbled himself and became a man. He humbled himself in accepting even death, death on a cross. He humbles himself by becoming present under these ordinary signs of bread and wine. The humility of God. Without humility, there's no holiness. Pride was the sin of Lucifer. That was the fall of the angels. They wanted to be like God. That was the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. The disobedience that comes from pride. So if we want to grow in holiness, first of all, we have to admit that we all have some pride. But it becomes sinful pride when we're arrogant, we think we know everything, when we really put ourselves in place of God or above God. We have to recognize our creaturely state, our dependence upon God. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's all about humility. Why was Mary chosen to be the mother of the incarnate Son of God? Mary said in her Magnificat, God has looked with favor on his lowly servant. At the Annunciation, how did she describe herself? She said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. There was no more humble woman than the Blessed Virgin Mary. So if you want to grow in holiness, grow in humility. And there was no humility in the scribes and Pharisees. And that's why Jesus criticized them so much. Think about it in the temple. Pharisee up front, when he was praying, he really wasn't praying. He was praising himself about how good he was. And not like everybody else. It was the poor publican, the tax collector in the back, who beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's where holiness begins. When we beat our breasts and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. What would you say to someone who says, priests often ask for financial support for the parish or poor people, yet there are so many riches that could be sold in the Vatican? The riches in the Vatican, the art and the paintings and statues, etc., that's not liquid money. That belongs to the whole church, including the poor. I mean, the poor flock to St. Peter's and are uplifted by the beauty of the architecture and the art. This is not wrong, in my opinion. I think the amassing of wealth for the purpose of amassing wealth and for oneself and motivated by greed, that's what's sinful. But I think the ownership of beautiful art that we have for the glory of God and the worship of God that benefits everyone, including the poor. How can the church say baptisms are invalid, as in the Arizona case, because of one word, we? How can we say what God can or cannot do? It may be helpful if you explain what they're talking about here. Right. There were a couple cases. One, I think, was Arizona, Diocese of Phoenix, where it was discovered that this priest was baptizing with the incorrect formula. Instead of saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was saying, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Those baptisms are invalid 
because when one baptizes, one is acting in the person of Christ, whether one is a priest or even if a layperson is baptizing someone in a case of emergency. So the I pronoun needs to be used. It's God, it's Christ at work here. Christ working through the human minister. It's not the community. So it's not we. So whenever sacraments are celebrated, the proper form needs to be used. A priest cannot change the words. We have to say at the Eucharist, this is my body. We're repeating the words of Jesus. The words are important. And it's really tragic because all those people for many years who this priest baptized now are, you know, they're trying to find them to come forward to, to baptize them validly. And then to celebrate the other sacraments that didn't take effect because you have to be baptized. So it gets really complicated. Now, the latter part of that question about is God bound? Well, you know, let's say this was never discovered and these people died and they never were validly baptized. I mean, God's not bound by the sacraments. I, I believe the person thought he or she was baptized. I believe God saves them if they were, you know, in the state of grace when they died. I mean, God's power is not limited by the sacraments. Has the diocese ever considered holding apologetics courses? I think that would happen more on a parish level. I mean, we don't directly, the diocese has some classes, for example, that we provide for our teachers and things like that. But most of this takes place on the parish level. And I love apologetics, so... I encourage apologetics courses because it helps us in how to defend the faith. And of course, that happens on Redeemer Radio. There's a lot of apologetics on Redeemer Radio. And even on my radio show, some of the questions that come in, I kind of am giving an apologetic answer, like how do you respond to someone who says that Catholics worship Mary or whatever it might be? Or how do you respond when someone says that you don't have to go to a man to confess your sins. You know, we have to be able to answer those questions that might come from, for example, from Protestants, or even questions that come about other beliefs that we have, like purgatory, or even questions from atheists about the existence of God. Or how about all those questions we've dealt with in, on Redeemer Radio about science? I love getting those questions, but I think it's important that we, we know our faith well so that we can answer those questions. And, and to have the humility, if you don't know an answer, to just say, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know how to answer that, but I'll get back to you and, you know, find out. I have to do that, you know. I think sometimes I've heard every possible question, and then something will stump me. I'll get a question that I, I'll just have to honestly say, listen, I'll get back to you. I have to research that a little bit. Would RCIA maybe be a good opportunity for, I mean, they're kind of dealing with apologetics in those classes? Yeah, my experience when I was a priest with RCIA, and I love teaching RCIA, is a lot, we would get a lot of those questions. And it have to do often with Mary and the saints, or with the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or confession, or about the Pope and papal authority. So I think RCIA, a lot of RCIA candidates have those questions. I mean, they come to RCIA classes with their openness to becoming Catholic, but they're not necessarily decided when they start. They might have these questions, 
about the authority of the Pope or papal infallibility or about veneration of Mary and the saints. And we need to be able to answer those and help a person to understand the teachings of the church correctly so that they can accept and embrace those teachings. All right. What are some of the positive things taking place today in the church? You don't hear about those in the, in the news a lot, but I see them every day. There's so many positive things happening. When I visit parishes and I visit our schools, I see so much good. I see works of mercy. I see works of charity. Often quiet, often, you know, for no acclaim. I mean, just here in Fort Wayne, you know, the people who've, and in Fort South Bend, the people helping with the resettlement of the Afghan refugees. I mean, it's been beautiful. I, there was a group of students at Bishop Lores High School. When I visited there last month, we moved several of these families whose lives were in danger in Afghanistan because they had helped our U.S. military in Afghanistan, and they were able to escape. And, you know, we're resettling uh, several of them here. And, and I asked, and, and I think of St. Charles Parish, for example, has adopted a family, and I think there's others as well. It's just been beautiful. Well, anyhow, when I was at Bishop Lures, I had lunch with a group of student leaders, and they knew about the Afghan refugees, the families coming, living temporarily next door in a diocesan facility that we have. And they said, Bishop, what can we do? Can we invite them over for, to Lures and maybe bring them to a basketball game or something? And I said, sure, you can do that. And it was great. There, I don't know if you saw the photo in, the, in today's Catholic. And these Afghan teenagers, they were just, I mean, and these Lors kids, our kids, and the Afghan, I mean, they neither knew each other's language, but they had a great time together. And they welcomed them, and, and they were Muslims. And here we are, uh, and it was just beautiful to see that. But I see so much goodness like that around the diocese, so many people really living the gospel visiting the sick, uh, praying. I mean, elderly people. I, it's wonderful when I get to visit the homebound, which isn't too often. I wish, I, you know, it's kind of part of being a parish priest, but I don't get to do that too much. But, but seeing their faith and people offering up their, their pain and their sufferings for others. And there's a young man in our diocese who was just diagnosed with lymphoma, and he has little kids, and it's just beautiful. I was able to give him the anointing of the sick, and bless him with Lord's water, and he's going to go through treatments. You, some of you may know him. But his faith, he, he just sees this as a gift to offer up his pain. Obviously, he's praying for healing, but he's offering it up for like others, especially those who aren't practicing their faith. So he's using that suffering for good. So there's so many stories like that. This might be our last question here. Is there anything you miss? You mentioned visiting the homebound. You don't get to do that as much anymore. Is there anything you miss about being a parish priest? Yeah, I would say, you know, I love being a bishop, and there's things that I do as a bishop that I didn't get to do as a parish priest. I love celebrating confirmations, and celebrating ordinations is one of the most awesome things. But then there are the everyday things that a priest does that I don't have really the ability to do so much like visiting hospitals, visiting the sick, anointing the sick. I mean, there are occasions where I do, I'm able to do that. Baptisms on a regular basis. I do celebrate some baptisms, but not like a parish priest would have more baptisms. Or weddings would be another thing. Probably last year I had three or four weddings, whereas as a priest I might 
have 25, depending on the size of the parish. So, so I do miss some of that, yeah. But I do get to do other things that a parish priest don't get to do, you know, like getting to know so many people throughout the diocese. And like I said, the beautiful sacrament confirmation and the sacrament of holy orders are wonderful. All right, well, we have a lot more questions that we didn't get to. So fortunately, we've got a lot of material for future episodes. Thank you, Bishop, for being here. And thank you for all of your guidance and, and ministry in this in diocese. You're welcome. And thank you, Kyle. Thank you, everybody. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.